on episode 95 of the Insure Tech Geek podcast, talking about innovation at scale with Charlotte Creech from USAA. The Insure Tech Geek podcast, powered by JV Knowledge, is all about technology that's transforming and disrupting the insurance world. We'll be interviewing guests and doing deep dives into specific tech we see changing the industry. We're taking you on a journey through insurance tech, so enjoy the ride and geek out. And we are back again. Another great show for you here on the Insure Tech Geek Podcast with my fellow geek, Rob Galbraith. How's it going, Rob? It's going, James. Had a nice Labor Day weekend. And uh, yeah, can't believe we're already into the fall. It's a fast approaching. Football started. It's an exciting time. Yeah, I was going to say, which means it's time for football season, which I have been waiting for since February. Oh, my goodness. And uh, yeah, it's a. Uh, it's that special time of year. My Aggies won their season opener uh, against the ferocious, ferocious opponent of Sam Houston State. <laughs> the real, the real game start later. Of course, everybody in the SEC won this week except for Chip Kelly at LSU, who just couldn't pull it out uh, against Florida State in his own home state of New Orleans. Couldn't, couldn't figure it out. Chip Kelly on the hot seat already in Baton Rouge, but. This is not a football talk show, although it could be. I would enjoy that thoroughly. We could definitely cover the SEC and the Big Ten with you and I's background. We're not going to talk about that, though, because we got an all-Texas show, y'all. Now, all right, just to be clear, (laughs) none of us were born in Texas. I was born in Louisiana. Charlotte says she's from Connecticut. Rob is from Michigan. So we got three people from three totally different parts of the country. I moved here 25 years ago. Rob, when did you move to Texas? 10, yeah, 12, 24, how many years ago? 24, yeah. 24, jeez, okay. 24 yeah. years in Texas, 25 years in Texas. Charlotte's the newcomer. Charlotte, uh, you, you got over here to Texas when? I got here in 2015, so I've been in Texas about seven years. Yes, so that's long enough to say you, you're te- if you want to claim it as a state, which you should, if you don't, you should leave. Oh, I'm sorry, <laughs> did I say that? <laughs> that was the, you know, Texas will make you a militant Texan in like no time flat. Like you'll just be like all about, yeah, I'm from Texas. I went to France in June and people asked me where I was from. I didn't say USA. I said Texas. <laughs> because I mean, hell, we're the, we're the eighth largest economy in the world. So, you know, it is big enough for people to figure it out. So there's three of us in Texas. Now, Charlotte and Rob uh, looked like they worked together at USAA at some point in time and uh, are both in San Antonio. Uh, I'm in College Station, Texas. Uh, Rob is, of course, uh, running, running his show over there in San Antonio. Now, now, Rob, tell me about how you, how you met Charlotte. I don't know. Have we even met Charlotte? That's, we overlap for a brief time. But, yeah, um, here we are. We, we met today. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. We do have lots of mutual connections, but this is our first time. I bet you y'all have like 500 mutual friends on LinkedIn. Yeah. I do. I'll say I, I see true. Rob frequently on my social media feeds. <laughs> so so y'all so y'all have uh, um, some overlap in your time at USA together. So Charlotte, we're gonna we're gonna talk about you now uh, because innovation. We are gonna talk about innovation and insurance, and we're gonna talk about what that looks like at scale, the scale of a USAA. It's a big company, a good one too. And uh, but before we get into that, I want to talk about you. So it looks like I think you were born and raised over there in, in Connect I Cut. Is that correct? You got it. Yeah. A nutmegger. Yeah. So a nutmegger. I like that. Yeah, I'm a I'm a Cajun chef from Louisiana. Uh, <laughs> I beat the I beat the Cajun accent out of my accent. I I went I went full Midwestern neutral a few years ago. Um, so tell me about 
uh, growing up in Connecticut, uh, first off, what part of the state did you grow up in? And secondly, like, what do you want to be when you were a kid? Okay, well, I grew up in the Hartford area. Um, makes sense. Insurance capital of the world. Yeah. Um, so lots of opportunities there. You know, grew up in the Connecticut suburbs, had a great upbringing in a quiet suburban town. Um, thought I was going to explore the world and leave and I made it all the way to Boston for college, but uh, wound up back in Connecticut after I graduated and um, had my first job at, at one of the large carriers in the Hartford area. So that's a little bit about that. So um, like when you're a little girl in the Hartford area, do you like grow up playing with like little dolls of a, of adjusters? Like did the boys have little, little GI <laughs> adjusters and like GI policy administrators? Is that... Do they do they bring it into the schools or do they not? Do, did you did you even have an awareness that like because when I, I grew up in South Louisiana, I really didn't understand like what economically it was capital of, which is yeah. petrochemical industry, right? Like petrochem in Louisiana. So like, did you did you know that it was all about insurance or did that happen later? Yeah, I knew it was all about insurance, and certainly as I was coming out of my undergraduate degree, it, you know, if you wanted to work in the Hartford area, really, insurance is where the bulk of the job opportunities are. So, um, yeah, the story behind it was I was a business management major in uh, the company that the, the carrier that I ended up going to was one of the few companies that came to recruit specifically kind of a generic business degree because where I went to school was heavily focused on accounting. So it's not a very exciting story, but yes, I mean, the job opportunities in the Hartford area are heavily concentrated yeah. in insurance. So if you want to stay local, then that's kind of what you naturally gravitate toward. That's what you do. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah, here I'm in Texas, so you can guess what our big industry is. Oil and more yeah. oil. <laughs> so <laughs> There's a lot of people that like to go into oil and engineering and infrastructure. It's the same thing. Yeah. So you, you get out of college. You, uh, I, I'm seeing here you went to Bentley, and, and of course you got all, all the way, all the way to Boston. Right. Uh, what, what is that like a three, three hour drive four four hour Not drive? Even. Not even. Miles, I was say, two hours. <laughs> no, cross three states here in Texas. That's called down the road. Um, <laughs> that's like the distance between <laughs> you, you and the Frio river. Um, so, uh, it's, you know, uh, awesome. And, and you ended up doing something pretty neat that I, I thought was really cool. You know, you ended up for a few years as co-founder of combat to career. Can you tell me about that? Cause I think that, I have, a, I have a, a sense that might play into some of, of why USAA may have been appealing to you. So if you could tell me what Combat to the Career was and what led you to start that. Yeah, for sure. Happy to. I'll, but I'll start by saying, you know, I, I never grew up dreaming of a job in insurance. It wasn't necessarily what I thought I was going to end up doing, but it ended up being a great introduction. And I gained a lot of responsibility very quickly as a latent injury claims adjuster. Um, but what ended up happening is while I was at my first insurance job as an asbestos adjuster, uh, I met my husband and he was in the Air Force Reserves and he ended up getting called up to deploy to combat. So he deployed overseas and that really changed our life. Um, and so, you know, I had this great day job and was a, a business professional, but my heart was really calling me to this other mission of how do I support my, at the time, boyfriend, now husband, um, through his deployment. And more importantly, when he came back from a combat area, you know, helping him make that transition back into civilian life. So kind of as I was going through that very emotional experience with him 
and trying to help him figure out his next steps. It also really motivated me to look at my own career and my own journey and to take a look at what skills do I have and where can I really add value to the world. Um, and so that mission to serve, you know, I, I never served directly in the military myself, but indirectly through my husband's service and then also having a brother um, in the Navy and a stepsister in the Army. Uh, I just felt that there was something more I needed to be doing to give back to that community and to serve in a different way. So I say all of that because you really need to understand that context and like how did this woman go from um, working in insurance to starting a tech startup, it doesn't really make sense until you know the story behind it. So with that business degree, um, a calling to serve, a deep connection to a very prevalent social issue at the time, uh, it motivated me to go get my MBA. And as I was going through graduate school, I started studying venture consulting, wrote a business plan, connected with uh, one of my classmates who had also served in the armed forces. And the two of us naively decided that instead of going to corporate careers after completing our MBA, we were going to start a tech company. And so that's really what gave rise to Combat to Career. And what the company was, was um, building a veteran-specific college search platform. So the mission and the problem was to help our veterans transition more effectively into civilian careers. And we really focused on the part of leveraging their GI Bill benefits, which is a government-backed asset, which essentially pays for going to college, um, potentially at no cost to the service member. And we saw that as the pivotal transition point to help them adjust and transition into their post-military career. So leveraging that combat to college to career, and that was how it worked. So that's what yeah. we set out to do. Yeah, and that's a, that's a, that's a tough transition. I, I was in... ROTC, I did not commission. There were 18 of us in my unit and 12 commissioned and six of us didn't. But the 12 that did, um, you know, some are still serving after 21 years, but uh, most have retired by now. And uh, I've watched them go through that transition and it's it's not always easy. Some it's very traumatic. Some have an MOS or they have a specialty in the military that translates really well into uh, the civilian world and and some don't some have to do some work to translate those specialties um, and so it's been, um, been been an interesting journey to walk through with them and watch them transition out and, and get into other businesses and and certainly I'm thankful for anybody that wants to help them USAA of course was a, a major sponsor of the Corps of Cadets Association uh, it still is a major sponsor of the Corps of Cadets Association at Texas A&M, so I'm I'm very thankful for that, and their their consistent, so obviously their consistent support for the military because that's that's the heart of the organization and why it was formed. What led you to want to go join USAA? Yeah, so I was running this tech startup, um, learning a lot, failing a lot, but very passionately focused on a specific mission. And as I was trying to grow as a, a first-time startup founder. And as a female founder trying to raise venture capital in a world where I didn't have a lot of connections, I ended up going through um, a feeder program called Patriot Bootcamp. And Patriot Bootcamp is a kind of an offshoot from the Techstars Accelerator. And so they take that Techstars Accelerator course, condense it into a three-day bootcamp format and offer it free of charge to um, tech startup CEOs that are either veterans or spouses of military veterans. And so went through Patriot Bootcamp, um, really was able to build out my network, get some incredible mentorship, 
And unfortunately, you know, I reached that point in growing combat to career where we had paying customers, we had a product on the market, we were generating revenue, but I wasn't really making a living doing it yet. And we had some challenges of also starting a family and other things. And so just had to reach that point where um, we needed to pursue a different path. So I shut down the startup. um, And as I was looking for my next opportunity, uh, Patriot Bootcamp was taking off and looking to hire its first kind of official executive director and CEO to convert it from being an all-volunteer event into a sustainable 501c3 nonprofit. So from combat to career, then to becoming a nonprofit CEO, um, built Patriot Bootcamp for about three years, and that's where USAA came into play. Of course, as a nonprofit leader, you're always looking for the right partners and sponsors, and USAA just made a lot of sense for so many reasons. So built that relationship with USAA, got them signed on to be our lead uh, corporate sponsor for Patriot Bootcamp. And as I got to know some of our teammates at USAA, they said, you know, we're looking for somebody um, with a claims background, but that has an entrepreneur's spirit because we're forming this new claims innovation team. And so I was just in the right time at the right place and uh, got recruited over to come lead innovation at USAA. That's awesome. Yeah. And, and, and you know, they, they're so active in sponsoring and getting involved in organizations supporting the troops and veterans that it's uh, no surprise that they would have had a, a touch point interaction. So uh, my, my last question on you before we, I hand it over to Rob, what do you do now for USAA? What kind of team do you lead? What experiments do you work with? I mean, what, what do you work on now? Yeah, sure. So I'm the head of our claims innovation team, which is embedded within our core property and casualty business. There's a couple of different pockets of innovation at USAA, um, but specifically my group is attached to that claims experience. So we're all about innovating across both the member and the employee experience. And that's a combination of, you know, could look like process innovation. It could also look like looking ahead, scanning the market for where are those uh, disruption points going to happen and how do we integrate new technology to really digitize experiences that were previously very manual um, and repetitive and instead allowing the adjuster to have the best tools so they can focus on delivering the best-in-class customer service and empathy to our members. That's awesome. Great. Rob? Charlotte, it's good to have you on. Um, Thrilled to to. Me too. Obviously, we've talked uh, briefly. Like we we have uh, quite a bit of overlap in our connections and, and overlap for a very short time at uh, USA, but never had the, the opportunity to to really interact there. So it's it's so great to have you on the podcast. Um, so I, I know from my experience, both at USA and then later at AF Group leading innovation functions, um, that a lot of people. You know, it, it can't sound very sexy. A lot of people immediately go to kind of the ideation, the brainstorming, the cool tech, et cetera. But there's a whole lot more to the role than just the parts that maybe come to to, to top of mind with folks. Uh, so I'm curious, what does a week in the life look like for you at USA? Tough question to answer because I'd say there's nothing consistent or standardized about leading innovation in general or dealing with technology and um, huge disruption. But how I stay focused is really on the people. Um, for me, the, the philosophy here is if you invest in your people first, it's the, the people that eventually do the work and happy employees uh, lead to happy customers because if they're motivated to do their jobs and do it well, um, then they deliver excellent customer service and really focus their valuable time and attention on solving the problems that matter. So I'd say for me, you know, 
every week is full of lots of meetings and innovation is certainly hard to do. Um, it can be very difficult in a large complex corporation like USAA. Um, most of my time is spent on working with my team um, and meeting with all of our stakeholders. You know, you certainly need to spend a lot of time focusing on like socializing the art of the possible, gaining alignment on a shared vision for the future, and then caring for your people so they have the influence and the top cover and really feel empowered to go lead and execute and deliver all of the best innovations in the right way. So a lot of meetings, a lot of stakeholder socialization, influence, uh, shared alignment, and then of course, everything has to come with a great action plan as well. So just making sure all of the stakeholders are aligned and going through all of the appropriate planning routines can take a lot of coordination too. Yeah. Um, so let's chat through the projects. Give me some example, whatever you can talk about. Give me some example projects you've worked on in the past, like how the idea came up, what the project looked like and, and how you, how you, you know, how you got it implemented. What were some of the challenges? So give me, give me some, some stuff, some stories. Sure. Yeah, I'll focus on um, telematics to start on the auto. So my team, our portfolio supports both um, auto and property. So we have a lot of a whole host of a portfolio of you know auto innovations and property. But I'll focus on auto to start, um, and it really begins with the product and the, the member need. So what member need did we have in our portfolio mix? And it was about giving our members more control over the price of their insurance. And then also making sure we were leveraging telematics information and driving data that the member had already agreed to share with us um, to help take care of them and keep them safe on the roads. So my team specifically has a, a sub team within it called telematics enabled auto claims. That is a trademarked term um, and it's attached to our safe pilot product on the market. So safe pilot is one of our auto telematics policy offerings and what telematics enabled auto claims does is the crash detection experience. So, you know, as I'm sure you're well versed in, um, kind of historically, claims is all about waiting for the member or the customer to report a loss. But the state of technology is enabling us to do so much more. And so now it's really taking that previously reactive experience and making it proactive. So if I know that the member was in a collision event before they've even told me, I can start to anticipate their needs um, and remove that burden of loss reporting off of their shoulders and instead just focus on caring for them in their time of need, making them feel safe and protected. And so we launched our crash detection experience uh, about a year ago, November of 2021. Um, we're seeing great traction with it as part of the Safe Pilot product and hearing some really great member feedback as well about um, how they feel safe, secure, protected by the experience that we've delivered. Yeah. So you reach out and say, hey, looks like you've been in an accident. Would you like to open a claim or do you need us to call? Yeah. Are you okay? Yeah. Are you okay? So it's almost like one, like OnStar, like you're, you're, you're in that role of OnStar. Like, do we need to call the police? Do we need to call someone, to, or a tow truck to come get you? Like you, it's that level of care. Yeah. It starts with a simple question. Are you Okay. Um, and making sure that they know that we have their back and we're there for them in a time of need. Um, so we're kind of at still the precipice of rolling that out. And there's a lot of opportunities to go deeper with the embedded experience to get into rental and tow and all of the really fun stuff down the road. But I'm um, seeing great traction and feedback so far on just the, are you okay? 
do you need to call 911 um, and making that information readily available and you know streamlined, ready to go. And you open an incident report right on the spot, right? You're not opening a claim yet, but you're opening an incident report. We enable the member to have kind of a shortcut process into our digital first notice of loss flow. Now, I have to caveat that by saying it's always the member's choice to actually initiate the claim. But yes, the technology enables them to shortcut right into it. Yeah, just speed speed of processing is what's really of so much value to people. Yep. That's a great example of a project. And, you know, you, you have a dedicated innovation team. You have an innovation group that you're leading which is different than, I guess, you know, the, 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 the old school way of doing things where the existing production group would try to work on innovative projects. And instead, you've, you've been carved out as a separate unit, correct? Exactly. Yep. So at some point, you hand off your initiatives to the production team so you can move on to the next innovation, correct? That's right. So your job is to ideate and launch and then, and then hand over to production. I go, what, is that a difficult handoff? I mean, at some point, do you have a handoff meeting where you're like, okay, this is officially no longer part of the innovation group. This, you know, digital enable auto claims or what, you know, TEAK, I think was the acronym I just memorized. This is now part of the production USAA crew and we're going to go work on something completely different for the next six months. I'll say it's blurry at best. It's a blurry line. Um, even in the four and a half years that I've been at USAA, you know, we've tried a couple of different methods and some have worked well, some have not. And so failure has to be part of the journey to success and where we're at today and and kind of where we've matured to is having shared accountability. And I wouldn't describe it as a hard line in the sand. I'd say, you know, the innovation team's core function is to take defined problem statements and start to ideate on the solutions and eventually build a prototype, prove out the concept and begin to be able to show the the true value of what this would look like in a production environment. And once we have a pretty solid business case lined up, that's when we start to bring in those production partners and kind of the um, the experienced owners that would implement that solution and own it after it leaves the innovation team. So they, they really have to be bought into the journey and you know, there's no defined timeline for how early you bring them in, but you need to give them time to learn it as well. And so that they're ready to take it over. And it's not just, you know, this thing that you're throwing over the fence to them and, <laughs> and never going to support again. So, um, yeah, it's tricky. And it, it really is a combination of good communication between teams, um, shared vision and alignment, and of course, having a, a proven business case. So there's strong incentive on the other side to want to own the solution and manage it. So I mean, you don't just send them an email saying, here's the source code. Good luck. Oh, At no. one point in time, we may have done that, <laughs> but it didn't go so well. Yeah. It's amazing how the, how those cold handoffs don't, don't generally result in a handoff. It's uh, <laughs> it's a, uh, it's, it's amazing. Rob. So Charlotte, um, obviously a big reason that we wanted to talk to you is just trying to help our uh, audience learn more about innovation at scale with a large company like USA that has that um, desire, right, to innovate that entrepreneurial spirit. Um, I still tell people about, hey, USA was started 100 years ago by 25 Army officers at Fort Sam Houston, right, which is still an active uh, Army base. And the reason they started the company was nobody else would give them auto interest at that time. They considered them a, a bad risk. And turns out they were an excellent risk and bought this amazing company. So I'd like you to think about one of your favorite projects to work on, a, an innovation uh, effort that really meant a lot to you for whatever reason. And maybe you can just 
hit some highlights about how that walked through from ideation to the planning process. You know, you mentioned the experience team. Like I think a lot of our audience members probably don't know all the stakeholders that are involved. USA, I think, is somewhat unique in having you know, the claims professionals themselves, right? The people that are doing the actual work day in, day out. Then you have this innovation team. And then you have this group that's really responsible for viewing holistically the claims process from the member customer's point of view. So maybe you can just walk through, right? Who are some of the key stakeholders? What do you do to to have them sign off? And then how do you ultimately go from maybe a small pilot to to launching something like a a safe pilot type program to everybody that's, you know, on all the ads, et cetera? Yeah, uh, we could uh, be here talking for a long time to get all through all of that in detail. But as I said before, it really starts with a clearly defined problem statement It's easy to get caught on shiny things that exist in the marketplace, the latest and greatest technology and a desire to want to integrate, but you have to get married to the problem first. And so for us, it's it's all about in claims, you know, that that member experience. So the member comes first and whatever the members needs are, are how we kind of rally the troops and prioritize our precious resources and development uh, skills as well. So. Um, I'll use an example. I, t- I talked a little bit about one of the, the things with telematics enabled auto claims on the auto side, but why don't I share something that we're doing on the property side as well? Um, and we have a, a group called the Disaster Innovation Response Team, lovingly uh, coined DIRT. And this is all about that catastrophe response. So when our members are having their worst day, when a catastrophic weather event, a hurricane, a tornado, a hailstorm, rips through um, a population or a neighborhood where we have a high density of our members close to a military installation or what have you, um, we wanted to be able to make sure we were not only first on scene, but really proactively serving them quickly um, in the face of a terrible life transition and life event, because we know in the claims experience that so often um, the first one to get their check is also the first one to be able to line up a contractor. And you don't want last pick on who your contractor is going to be to repair your home um, because that's the center of stability. If you don't have a place to stay, if you don't have food and shelter, you know, how can you focus on delivering the mission of military service to our country or on getting to work every day? And so really working from that problem statement of how do we best serve our needs the needs of our members during a catastrophe event is what gave rise to um, some of our aerial imagery technology and what we're currently doing in the market with drones and other um, imagery processing. And so we have a couple of ways that we go after it, but uh, just focusing on the catastrophe experience side, you know, we have both pre-catastrophe imagery. um, So we know where our members' homes are located. And then of course we match that up with weather events that pass through. And um, we can kind of predict how that might play out over time. And then we are also able to use different methods of aerial imagery capture. So um, whether it's fixed wing aircraft or actual drones that we fly and have a team deploy, um, we can then take that post-catastrophe imagery and map it up and detect where a member's home may have been damaged. And with the state of technology today, you know, that processing time has really come down. So how we've seen this play out in real events like the Colorado wildfires that happened over the last year is, you know, we're oftentimes 
um, the first one to know that a member's home may have been damaged even before the member has been authorized to return after evacuating an area. And so while that's a really difficult message to deliver, surprisingly, it brings them comfort um, and this feeling of USAA is supporting me, USAA is taking care of me and has my back. Um, and so from there, it can really help them get on the road to restoration a lot faster and making sure that we're caring for their needs so they can get back to their lives sooner. So um, that's kind of one example of the work that we're doing and how it delivers on the very critical member experience. Um, and then how we get it done. I mean, it can be pretty chaotic. Catastrophe events are <laughs> chaotic by nature, and it requires a lot of planning and impeccable communication between teams and stakeholders. I will say it takes a village to raise an innovation at USAA. Um, and one of our greatest strengths is that we have so many departments and resources, like we're very resource rich, but that is also a challenge in many ways when it comes to the coordination, planning, communication, making sure that everything is done in the right order of operations with the right level of urgency and with the right level of allocation of resources. Um, so it can be tricky to get that all right, but we've got a hundred years of experience under our belt and we truly believe that nobody serves our members better than we do. That's awesome. Charlotte, uh, thank you for, for that explanation and, and for, for talking through that. I'm a technical guy, so I do want to know how the sausage is made a little bit. Like if you have an innovation team, what are they actually doing? Like, do you, all right, do you have coders on your team? Do you have business analysts? Do you have people that are just taking off the shelf software and hardware and going in? Cause it's not all, it's not all software and hardware. It's people process and technology. Right. So, I mean, like you just said, you have, you have, you have, you have an army of USAA people. So you, you, you're, you're organizing people, you're implementing new process and you're applying technology, right? So it's not just tech, but certainly tooling is a big part of this. I mean, you, you, you just talked about one of my favorite things, which is aerial drones now I'm a I'm a pilot pilot of airplanes. I'm also a drone pilot, and so I love talking about drones. Been flying them for a very long time, like like years and years before people really used them commonly. I was around here in downtown Bryan flying my drone around, freaking people out. When you have an innovation team at a company the size like USAA, what percentage of those people are really business analysts? What percentage are the are the technical staff? Because we have a lot of questions about how you put this kind of team together and who you put on the team you know, and then what their skills are. And are you putting any coders on there? Are you actually writing any code? Or are you partnering with outside entities to, to write code and off-the-shelf solutions? I mean, what does that look like from a team structure and the, the technical architecture? Yeah, great question. So all of those resources exist at USAA for sure. They do not all exist directly within my chain of command or in my direct reporting structure. So my team is primarily a team of what I'll call business technologists. We are business roles, but we have to be tech savvy and we have to be able to interpret you know, what is the technology and how do we share the vision or explain the vision to our development teams in a way that makes sense to them from a coding perspective. And then we also have to be able to interpret and work with our experience owners in the claims organization to say, this is the vision and of, of what we want to deliver. This is how it'll service members' needs. This is how it will deliver on our strategy. And this is also, you know, maybe how it um, 
assist with our financial outcomes as well. So from a strategic perspective, you know, it has to be that combination of factors. And my team is the one really bringing all of those parties together. So it's almost like an innovation execution team. You have to be able to do both. Um, Whereas there are other pockets of innovation that are more focused on kind of the future facing really far out stuff. Um, but they're not as directly embedded within the line of business. And so my team has that healthy challenge of needing to bring the vision to life, bring the future into USAA, but also make sure we're delivering value in the form of value to our members and value to our USAA employees. Makes sense. Makes sense. And really that business technologist or in the, you know, the insurance technologist who has knowledge of the insurance industry and is tech savvy enough to know uh, what the terminology means and what they're really asking for and, and some of the components of how it works. At the end of the day, though, to, to pull off execution, you're counting on probably a pretty deep bench of, of technologists and process people that are out outside of the innovation group, correct? Yeah, for sure. We have a lot of partners. And that's why I said earlier, you know, it, it takes a village to raise yeah. an innovation at USAA because there is so much that needs to come together. So I, I definitely don't want to make it seem like my team does everything all by ourselves. It's, it's not the case at all. No, nor, nor is it at any company I've ever, I've ever worked with. <laughs> it's, it's, it's impossible to single-handedly innovate, uh, especially in an organization the size of yours. Rob, uh, bring, bring us home with our final question. Yeah, Charlotte. So thank you so much for all of your your time and really kind of walking through uh, your background as well as uh, what you and your team and and how innovation is done at scale at USA. So my final question is, what trend or technology are you following that you think has the potential to uh, influence and, you know, dare I use that word, disrupt the insurance industry in the future? Yeah, great question. And I'm really excited about this one. Um, Just my opinion, my own personal research, I am really excited about 3D printed technology and additive manufacturing. It's not a new concept, but I think the application of this type of technology in the insurance industry is going to be really transformational. And and why I say that is because, um, you know, the supply chain has been such a difficult issue for all of the insurance industry through the pandemic and even now. Um, And so being able to own your own supply chain and have more control over the inputs, whether it's raw materials or the cost of those materials or just shipping and logistics of procuring what you need to construct a home. I won't say all of that goes away with 3D printed technology, but a large part of it will be different. And so there's a company in Austin called Icon. Just for the record, I am not affiliated with them in any way. I just am a spectator and think they're really cool and had the opportunity um, to go on site and see what they're doing up close and in person. And I'm really fascinated with what they're doing, the mission behind the company. And so they are 3D printing concrete homes today um, for both residential and commercial opportunities. And they talked a lot about the logistics and the supply chain. Um, They also have a very exciting contract with the Department of Defense, and they've started to 3D print base housing, (laughs) housing, um, barracks, etc. on some of the military installations. And so it's just a really fascinating time in the market and they can literally like ship the printer 
and all of the raw materials to mix the concrete to a location. So think about how transformative that is if we could manufacture our own equipment and have it ready to go, put it in a shipping container and send it on site. And you don't need to worry about the coordination of all of these contractors and all of the materials coming from all different locations. So, you know, definitely the logistics side of it um, is really fascinating to the insurance industry. And then for the average person, it's interesting, you know, many of us say, well, why would I want a 3D printed home? But when you go in one and you see it in person, it is beautiful. It's an experience and it's fully customizable. So gone are the days of living in a subdivision where everybody's house looks exactly the same. If you could just go through a digital catalog and pick you know, the size and shape of your windows and your door frames and everything else, like it is the ultimate personalization of comfort in home living. So pretty excited about that. Curved walls, odd angles. There's there's a there's a lot you can do in decorative concrete. It's really an interesting space. Um, There's a there's a great 3D printing company called Branch Technologies out of Chattanooga that's been doing some bizarre, bizarre shapes out of buildings that, uh, you would never have imagined were possible. And then, then you go to Australia and you look at the the groups over there that are doing 3D printing. And they're, they're actually, there's the, the one that's really leading the way is, is uh, Fast Brick Robotics with the Hadrian X. And, and they built their own proprietary block and they use an adhesive instead of mortar. And um, they print houses with blocks like Lego. It's pretty amazing uh, to watch and it's in production now. So I, I think, you know, Charlotte, the exciting thing about a lot of this technology whether it's you know drones for aerial imaging or whether it's 3D printing or whether it's you know VR and augmented reality or what you know it's it, they're now they're, they've now achieved production status and so it's like well okay it's it's a lot more serious it's not just a lab experiment anymore I mean there there are people living in Icon's houses there's people living in fast brick robotic houses there's you know there, there's real commercial activity going on um, around those around that space that could really impact things and if you look at how a lot of Personal lines property carriers have been absolutely clobbered in the last two years on building and construction costs because of you know worker and labor shortages. Um, there's there's a real financial motivation for carriers to get on board with this because it can really upend their their actuarial tables for sure. When you have these big shortages like this, yeah, that's neat. Well, Charlotte, really interesting conversation. I, I appreciate what you're doing uh, at USAA. Welcome uh, now a few years in, seven years into the great state of Texas. Glad to have you here along with us other imports uh, from Michigan and Louisiana. Thank you. And uh, I hope you and I hope you've gone to New Braunfels, uh, Green Hall, maybe. Of course. Then a little river. Okay. Then a little river floating. You, 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 you know, like it doesn't get much better. I was in July. I went down to Green. I had to pick my daughter up from summer camp in New Braunfels, and uh, I, I, the night before I went to Green Hall, I was drinking a Lone Star beer, listening to listening to a phenomenal country musician, uh, in in a, in a non air conditioning Green Green Hall on the banks of the of the uh, I think it's on the Guadalupe or the Comal, and I was like Texas. <laughs> just it just felt like you know it was just like the most Texas moment ever. So I hope you've had your Texas moments in the last seven years. Yeah, I actually saw a Pat Green concert at yes. Green Hall. So yes. how about that? Yes. <laughs> I bet you, and I bet you it was packed. It was. Yeah, Pat and, Green, uh, he's awesome. Note to self, be careful wearing high heels on the the wood floor. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 You're supposed to wear, you're supposed to wear your, your boots uh, there, Charlotte. So it's a, yeah. 
Bo- boots have boots have a bigger sliding surface. The he- heels don't do well on that uh, that that old that old wooden floor they got in Green Hall. Pat Green, of course, one well, a Texas legend, Texas country music legend. I'm a big fan of his. I got a, I got a bunch of his music on my phone. I got I got to listen to Robert O'Keen this past weekend, another Texas country music legend. It was his final two concerts. Oh, wow. Uh, he's, he said he's hanging it up and retiring, which I'll be honest, I never really believe when a musician said because they end up doing so many reunion tours. But uh, they said it was his last, and he performed it over at Texas A&M, so it was a lot of fun seeing him there on campus. And nice. Listening about how the, the, the road goes on forever and the party never ends, his favorite line. So uh, yeah. that's cool. Well, thank you, Charlotte. Appreciate it. And uh, Rob Galbraith, as always, thank you. Absolutely. Thanks. Great to be with you again, James. Thanks, Char- Charlotte, so much for joining us today. Likewise. Thanks. All right. And thank you out there in listener land for tuning in today. Episode 95, our interview with Charlotte Creech from USAA. This has been the InsureTech Geek podcast uh, powered by JB Knowledge. That's jbknowledge.com. It's all about transforming and disrupting the insurance world. I've been your host, James Benham. That's jamesbenham.com with co-host Rob Galbraith. That's endofinsurance.com. Big thanks to Jim Greenlee, our podcast producer, Kara Dalton-Alro, our creative producer. And thank you for joining us today. We're taking you on a journey through insurance tech. So enjoy the ride and geek out. See you next time.